The Life of Philip Roach, a Pirate, etc. By Arthur L. Hayward. Coffee Break Collection 18. Pirates. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Philip Roach, a Pirate, etc. As in the life of Captain Massey, my readers cannot but take notice of those great evils into which men are brought by over-forwardness and inconsideration, so in the life of the malefactor we are now to speak of, they will discern what a prodigious pitch of wickedness, rapine and cruelty human nature is capable of reaching unto, when people abandon themselves to a desire of living after their own wicked inclinations, without considering the injuries they do others while they gratify their own lusts and sensual pleasures. Philip Roach was the son of a person of the same name in Ireland. His father gave him all the education his narrow circumstances would permit, which extended, however, to reading and writing a tolerable good hand, after which he sent him to sea. Philip was a lad of ingenious parts, and instead of forgetting, as many do, all they have learnt, he, on the contrary, took all imaginable care to perfect himself in whatsoever he had but a slight notion of before he went to sea. He made abundance of coasting voyages about his native island, went once or twice to Barbados, and being a saving and industrious young fellow, picked up money enough to become first mate in a trading vessel to Nantes in France, by which being suffered to buy goods himself, he got considerably, and was in a fair way to attaining as great a fortune as he could reasonably expect. But this slow method of getting money did by no means satisfy Roach. He was resolved to grow rich at once, and not wait till much labour and many voyages had made him so. When men once form to themselves such designs, it is not long before they find companions fit for their purpose. Roach soon met with one Neil, a fisherman of no education, barbarous but very daring, a fellow who had all the qualities that could conspire to make a dangerous villain, and who had already inured himself to the commission of whatever was black or bloody, not only without remorse but without reluctance. Neil recommended him to one Pierce Cullen, as a proper associate, in those designs they were contriving. For this Cullen, as Neil informed him, was a fellow of principles and qualifications much like himself, but had somewhat a better capacity for executing them, and with Neil had been concerned in sinking a ship after insuring her both in London and Amsterdam. But Providence had disappointed them in the success of their wicked design, for Cullen having been known, or at least suspected, of doing such a thing before, those with whom they had insured at London, instead of their paying the money, caused them to be seized and brought to a trial, which demolished all their schemes for cheating insurance offices. Cullen brought in his brother to their confederacy, and after abundance of solicitation induced Wise to come in likewise. The project they had formed was to seize some light ship and turn pirates in her, conceiving it no difficult matter afterwards to obtain a stronger vessel, and one better fitted for their purpose. The ship they pitched on to execute this their villainous purpose was that of Peter Tartu, a Frenchman of a very generous disposition, who on Roach and his companions telling him a melancholy story readily entertained them. 
and perceiving Roach was an experienced sailor, he entrusted him upon any occasion with the care and command of the ship. Having done so one night, himself and the chief mate, with the rest of the French who were on board, went to rest, except a man and a boy, whom Roach commanded to go up and furl the sails. He then called the rest of his Irish associates to him upon the quarter-deck. There Roach, perceiving that Francis Wise began to relent, and fearing he should persuade others in the same measures, he told him that if every Irishman on board did not assist in destroying the French, and put him and Cullen in a capacity of retrieving the losses they had had at sea, they would treat whoever hesitated in obeying them with as little mercy as they did the Frenchmen. But if they would all assist, they should all fare alike, and have a share in the booty. Upon this the action began, and two of them running up after the Frenchman and boy, one tossed the lad by the arm into the water, and the other driving the man down upon the deck, he there had his brains dashed out by Roach and his companions. They fell next upon those who were retired to their rest, some of whom, upon the shrieks of the man and boy, who were murdered, rising hastily out of their beds and running up upon deck to see what occasioned those dismal noises, were murdered themselves before they well knew where they were. The mate and the captain were next brought up, and Roach went immediately to binding them together in order to toss them overboard, as had been consulted. "'Twas in vain for poor Tartu to plead the kindness he had done them all, and particularly Roach. They were deaf to all sentiments, either of gratitude or pity, and though the poor men entreated only so much time as to say their prayers and recommend themselves to God, yet the villains— though they could be under no apprehensions, having already murdered all the rest of the men, would not even yield to this. But Cullen hastened Roach in binding them back to back to toss them at once into the sea. Then hurrying down into the cabin, they tapped a little barrel of rum to make themselves good cheer, and laughed at the cries of the two poor drowned men, whom they distinctly heard calling upon God, until their voices and their breaths were lost in the waves. After having drunk and eaten their fill with as much mirth and jollity as if they had been at a feast, they began to plunder the vessel, breaking open the chests and taking out of them what they thought proper. Then to drinking they went again, pleasing themselves with the barbarous expedition which they resolved to undertake as soon as they could get a ship proper to carry them into the West Indies, intending there to follow the example the buccaneers had set them, and rob and plunder all who fell into their hands. From these villainies in intention, the present state of their affairs called upon them to make some provision for their immediate safety. They turned, therefore, into the channel, and putting the ship into Portsmouth, there got her new painted, and then sailed for Amsterdam, Roach being unanimously recognised their captain, and all of them promising faithfully to submit to him through the course of their future expeditions. On their arrival in Holland, they had the ship a second time new painted, and thinking themselves now safe from all discovery, began to sell off Captain Tartu's cargo as fast as they could. No sooner had they completed this, but getting one Mr. Annesley to freight them with goods to England, himself also going as a passenger, they resolved with themselves to make prize of him and his effects, as they had also done with the French captain. Mr. Annesley, poor man, little dreaming of their design, came on board as soon as the wind served, 
and the next night, a brisk gale blowing, they tore him suddenly out of his bed and tossed him over. Roach and Cullen being with others in the great cabin, he swam round and round the ship, called out to them, and told them they should freely have all his goods if they would take him in and save his life, for he had friends and fortunes enough in England to make up that loss. But his entreaties were all vain to a set of wretches who had long ago abandoned all sentiments of humour and mercy. They therefore caroused as usual, and after sharing the booty, steered the vessel for England. Some information of their villainies had by that time reached thither, so that upon a letter being stopped at the post-office, which Roach, as soon as they had landed, had written to his wife, a messenger was immediately sent down, who brought Philip up in custody. Being brought to the council-table and there examined, he absolutely denied either that himself was Philip Roach, or that he knew of any one of that name. But his letters, under his own hand to his wife being produced, he was not able any longer to stand in that falsehood. Yet those in authority, knowing that there was not legal proof sufficient to bring these abominable men to justice, offered Roach his life, provided he gave such information that they might be able to apprehend and convict any three of his companions more wicked than himself. But he was so far from complying therewith, that he suffered those of his crew who were taken to perish in custody rather than become an evidence against them. This was the fate of Neil, who perished of want in the Marshalsea, having in vain petitioned for a trunk in which was a large quantity of money, clothes, and other things to a considerable value, which had been seized in Ireland by virtue of a warrant from the Lord Justice of that kingdom, on the account of the detention of which, while he perished for want of necessaries and clothes, Neil most heavily complained, forgetting that these very things were the plunder of those unhappy persons whom they had so barbarously murdered, after having received so much kindness and civility from them. In the meanwhile, Roach, being confined in Newgate, went constantly to the chapel and appeared of so obliging a temper that many persuaded themselves he could not be guilty of the bloody crimes laid to his charge, and, taking advantage of these kind thoughts of theirs, he framed a new story in defence of himself. He said that there happened a quarrel on board the ship between an Irishman and a Frenchman, and that Tartu, taking part with his own nation, threatened to lash the Irishman severely, though he was not in any way in the wrong. This, he pretended, begat a general quarrel between the two nations, and the Irish being the stronger, they overpowered and threw the French overboard, in the heat of their anger, without considering what they did. Throughout the whole time he lay in Newgate, he very much delighted himself with the exercise of his pen, continually writing upon one subject or other, and often assisting his fellow prisoners in writing letters, or whatever else they wanted in that kind. When he was told that Neil, who died in the Marshalsea, gushed out all parts of his body with wood, so that before he expired he was as if he had been dipped in gore, Roach replied, it was a just judgment that he who had always lived in blood should die covered with it. Some time afterwards, being told that one of his companions had poisoned himself, he said, Alas, that so evil an end should follow so evil a life. For his part, he would suffer providence to take its course with him, and rather die the most ignominious death than to his other crimes add that of self-murder. 
the rest who had been apprehended dying one by one in the same dreadful condition with neil that is with the blood gushing from every part of their body which looked so much like a judgment that all who saw it were amazed he roach began to think himself perfectly safe after the death of his companions supposing that now there was nobody to bear any testimony against him and therefore instead of appearing in any way dismayed he most earnestly desired the speedy approach of an admiralty session it was not long before it happened and when he found what evidence would be produced against him he appeared much less solicitous about his trial than anybody in his condition would have been expected to be for he very well knew it was impossible for them to prove him guilty of the murders and as impossible for him to be acquitted of the piracy after receiving sentence of death he declared himself a papist and said that he could no longer comply with the service of the church of england and come to chapel he did not however think that he was in any danger of death but supposed that the promises which had been made him on this first examination would now take place and prevent the execution of his sentence when therefore the messenger returned from hanover and brought the express order that he should die he appeared exceedingly moved thereat and without reflecting at all on the horrid and barbarous treatment with which he had used others he could not forbear complaining of the great hardship he suffered in being put into the death-warrant after a promise had been made him of life though nothing is more certain than that he never performed any part of those conditions upon which it was to have taken place at the place of execution he was so faint confused and in such a consternation that he could not speak either to the people or to those who were nearer at hand dying with the greatest marks of dejection and confusion that could possibly be seen in any criminal whatever he was about thirty years old at the time of his execution which was at high water mark execution dock on the fourteenth of august seventeen twenty three end of the life of philip roach a pirate etc